0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business BT's got your back search BT's got your back
2: hello there thank you so much for downloading the Times Red Box podcast Matt Chorley is still off he'll be back next week don't worry I'm Luke Jones sitting in ahead we've got absolutely loads for you um our final pre-pandemic professor, Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter. And what a joy it is to hear world-renowned experts in their field, uh, a a wise head throughout this COVID pandemic, giggling on the radio. Um, He's very good for me. We'll hear from him in a a moment about his career, not just uh, doing statistical work to do with um, medical trials and the like but also he was part of, of the inquest into the Howard chipman murders into what happened at bristol royal infirmary um he was in a samba band as well at one point as well uh, we'll hear from him we'll hear about long covid uh, we will take you to a long covid clinic at university college hospital because when you figured out today showing the incredible scale of long COVID and just how many people are suffering from it a, a year after contracting COVID. It's incredible. But first, we'll start with our columnists. Today, Rachel Cunliffe and Josh Glancy. Let's start with travel chaos, shall we? Um, which I feel like I've said that those words more in the past um, year than I've ever said them before. Um, Josh, do you have any sympathy? In fact, you were in Spain, weren't you, recently, hearing from sort of amber gamblers there. Do you have any sympathy with them all the people who've had their plans potentially ripped up?
3: I do, of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I went to Marbella last week to embed to, a sort of deep Deep cover with the uh, with the people who were taking these list holidays, and it is doable if you've got the cash and the patience to do quarantine and, and the flexibility. Uh, but it's a, it's a lot of headaches and admin. Um, I do feel really sorry for people. I think you know this, the back and forth is is agonising. I've got a lot of friends. I spent most of yesterday receiving calls from people who were panicked about whether they should still go to Portugal because I'd done this piece on going to Spain and, and yeah. what it entails. Um, I do feel sorry for people. I think this is probably the last... <laughs> I'm not going to say it's the last time you'll say travel chaos, because it won't be. Mm-hmm. But I think it is the last time this summer. I think people will now just give up. I think at this point, it's staycation or bust, really. You know, unless you want to go to Iceland or something, because, you no, know, realistically... No to go to Iceland. Well, you know, I actually was supposed to go to a stag in Iceland in three weeks' time. We've had to pull really? out, because... Yeah, <laughs> because not everyone was double vaccinated. Um, <laughs> but... You know, I, I think at this point, it, you know, the summer is is, is over in a, in a tourist sense, in a holiday sense, and, and we all got to kind of accept that. And thankfully, the weather today accepted has perked up a bit and, and hopefully we can just have a fun summer in Britain. And, 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 you know, the lesson of this pandemic has really been that people who plan for the future end up getting hurt. It's, it's the hope that kills you. Rachel, it's the hope that kills you.
4: I just want to stand up for Iceland because I had oh, one of yeah. my best ever holidays in, in Iceland. Phenomenal is it not meant to be really
2: expensive?
4: Uh, it, the alcohol is expensive. The, um, the beer is
3: extortionate.
4: Yeah, yeah al- alcohol is expensive. But seeing the Northern Lights, like, can you put a price on that, really? Um, I, I I just... Iceland is amazing. It might not... It's, it's not it's not quite Portugal, um, but I just... Just a shout out to Iceland. They're probably not the best place for a stag to Um I think on the travel chaos, the, the one thing that people are kind of upset about is the hope yes also we saw this chaos uh last summer with you know country suddenly going onto the the, the no-go list and these, this panic, people trying to get flights back at 4am and stuff. And the government did say that they were going to have a green watch list yeah. this time around, where if a country looked like it was starting to get a bit dodgy, you could see it and so people could make plans and it wasn't so sudden. And obviously that, that hasn't happened here. At the same time, though, you do have people saying, well, if we shut down uh, travel to India earlier, if we put India on the red list back when we knew there was an Indian variant, rather than waiting three weeks, which the government did, may Maybe we were in a much better position now. We wouldn't have the, the Delta Indian variant as the dominant strain in the UK. So the government is getting it um, from from both sides and is trying to to play both sides. I think very badly because what they probably should have done is said right from from the beginning, our vaccine rollout is going really well. We don't know how it's going in the rest of the world. We are in control of what happens in the UK. We want to have a reopening in the UK and have indoor mixing and restaurants opening and large events. That means, sorry, no summer holidays, exemption to people who have family abroad or separated couples um, and who have who have reasons like that, but basically no no summer holidays abroad. And I think if they'd said that from the start, people would kind of have accepted that's mm. the price you pay for an unlocking. Instead, they tried to say, yes, we can have a, a summer holiday plan. It's going to be an open summer but, but not yet. And now they're disappointing everyone and they're really disappointing the travel industry that hasn't been able to plan and is now at risk of, of widespread job losses, where if they'd known and had some more time to prepare and got more targeted support, they wouldn't be in that position.
2: Josh, do you have any sympathy with the with the argument that says just get rid of the amber list and have yes or no? green red can i go yes can i not no you have to go in a quarantine hotel and then to take rachel's point say you're you're a, a, a couple you know split across the globe or you've got a close family elsewhere you can you can go to the red country but you sort of take the hit and do the quarantine hotel off the back
3: well the simplicity of that is appealing but you know realistically the quarantine hotel is is basically unaffordable and untenable yeah. for only those apart from those who really really need it and have the money, you know, it's about two grand plus you know, ten days of like imprisonment. So the amber list has been important for people. You know, a lot of people I went out with in Spain, they weren't just people who were a bit bored of the weather and wanted a holiday. They were people who have second homes um, in Spain, which they hadn't been to for a year and a half. There are people who. You know, I met one woman who had a grandson in Spain that she hadn't met yet, who'd been born six months ago. Gosh. You know, people do have quite valid reasons for wanting. You know, Spain is an example of, you know, for a lot of people, it's not just a, a holiday destination. It is a part, a big part of their lives. So the ambulance does give you some flexibility around that. You know, that yes, it's expensive for testing. Yes, there's quarantine obligations, but it's manageable. And so I, I do appreciate the flexibility. It's, it's the back and forth yeah. that is really killing people. And, and, you know, I think Portugal, in retrospect, you know, it probably wasn't a good idea because the moment you have to backtrack, you lose the political capital and you cause thousands of people this sort of endless headaches and disappointment. People are just so fed up of it at this point. It's just... You know, it's unbearable for a lot of
2: people. <laughs> and uh, back home, Rachel, to, to continue your point, that the government, well, Grant Shapps basically said yesterday that, that part of the thinking was about protecting the unlocking on the 21st of June in England, um, allowing more people to meet inside, allowing the scrapping of social distancing. But it looks more and more likely, doesn't it, that there's going to be some kind of pick-and-mix scenario where people are maybe still told to, to work at home? Do you think that's the right balance to actually, um, yeah, let, let's protect things at home before we allow anyone actually to indulge in lots of international travel?
4: Well, I think whether or not you, you change the official rules and guidance on working from home, uh, lots of people are going to do that anyway. Certainly, um, our workplace is, is is working on the idea that it's going to be a hybrid model going forward, partly because some people are still scared uh, rightly so. Partly because some people have made life choices. Uh, one of our, one of my colleagues has moved up to Edinburgh. I don't think she will be coming into the office nine to five in London anytime soon. Um, so there are long term changes. Really, there. Someone,
2: so someone, so someone who's still got a job but saying, actually, I'm going to do it in. Um... Yeah. In Edinburgh. There's yeah. a friend there's a there's a friend of a friend, which is another way the worst stories start, who um works in London for a, a big company and they um him and his girlfriend have bought a um I mean no sympathy here, I've bought a vineyard in the south of France. And <laughs> he is um and she's gonna try and basically start making wine and he's gonna study it and he's gonna live in the vineyard, but he's still doing his office job back in London, technically.
4: That sounds idyllic. Doesn't that I, sound I think, amazing? I think, I think there's a book in there somewhere.
2: I mean, um, maybe a very short, sad book.
3: But...
4: <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, sure. a, a shake shake up your life and go live in a vineyard. Actually, we went. My my partner and I went to sicily last september back when that was a thing that you could do yeah. and he definitely saw a, a for sale sign in the vineyard and was like should we do that and i said you do realize that we know nothing about wine except that we like drinking it <laughs> i'm not sure <laughs> this is a good business opportunity uh but i, I just think on the, on the travel thing um there's so much political capital is tied up in that june 21st day even if stuff doesn't go 100 percent back to normal and we don't get say nightclubs back i think if there is any sense that the more restrictions will come back there will start to be restrictions on indoor mixing and um no longer being able to have open restaurants and open pubs the the backlash especially at this stage in the vaccine rollout is going to be so fierce and so severe the government is just that's that's the priority don't roll back don't let anything jeopardize that and if it means upsetting people over holidays that's the the lesser of two political evils
2: are you happy with that trade-off josh have you thought about um continuing your job but doing it from a vineyard
3: (laughs) yeah um I, I I do think that um, I do think we've we've become a bit fixated with June twenty first, you know. I and mean, if it's a yeah. week here, a week there, I mean, it, ultimately we're what sixteen, seventeen months into this at this point, you know, it, it is just one date, but, but I think Rachel's right. It's become a kind of political sticking point. But, also, but, also it's
2: a, but it's a key point for business, though, isn't it? Andrew Lloyd Webber said he might sue the government because it means, right. you know, his theatres and things might not be able to turn a profit if, if social distancing is in place for long after that.
3: Yes, and, you know, you need to plan. If people are trying to sell theatre tickets in the last week of June and, and then you have to cancel it again. Um, interestingly, a lot of the expat business owners I spoke to in Spain are convinced that the government on some level is quite willing to keep people in Britain over the summer because that means they're going to spend all their surplus cash in Britain. You know, people, Mm. I think Rishi Sunak reckoned that there's about 150 billion pounds built up in people's bank accounts, uh, whether it's furlough money or, you know, just people not not spending as usual over lockdown. And I think there is a suspicion, at least abroad, that the government wants that money to be spent in Blighty, and not not in the bars of uh, Ibiza and, and Magaloo. Cynical, <laughs> um,
2: cynical. Just, for, cynical. Um, just before <laughs> we move on from the topic of holidays, did you have a nice time, Josh?
3: I did have a nice time. I went back to Puerto Benous in Marbella, which is where I spent some of my sort of um, most foolish weeks of my adolescence. And so I retrod a lot of the sort of old haunts, and it was completely unchanged. The only difference was there were very few Brits there, enough to get a story, but. Not, but a lot of the bars are still quite empty, but i I, I saw the salon where I got my ear pierced, um, many, many sort of bars with lots of regrettable memories, so it was, it was quite a sort of nice trip down memory lane <laughs> um,
2: there 's been an interesting return today to the the topic of statues. I remember that old debate, and the the, the Edwards Colston statue in bristol it 's now on display, and they want to know from uh, people what to do with it uh, in the future but Curators, they've sort of, they've got it laying down on display and they did consider at one point uh, showing it at 45 degrees to avoid causing offence. We had Anthony Gormley the other day saying that the Cecil Rhodes statue um, in Oxford should actually, a really good twist he had was to just make it, turn him round, don't remove it, don't just leave it as it is, just turn him round and make it face the wall. Um, Lots of interesting, quite clever um, ways to solve this debate, Rachel.
4: I really liked the Anthony Gormley um, idea because I think if you see a statue with its back to you and you know nothing about it, it makes you look at it and want to know more. And if you've got a sign there saying, here's when it was erected, here's what he did, here's why it's controversial, here's the story of the movement to remove it, you actually learn something there. I think one thing that uh, has always bothered me about the people who say, oh, you're tearing down our history, it's important, you're trying to erase history, is that most of the time, I think when people look at statues, they don't look and learn about the the history of it you just see a statue of a person and you don't even know necessarily who they are um and on on colston i i I, i'm a classicist my history kind of ends at about 200 ad
2: (laughs) he's a bit too modern for you he died in
4: 1721 and the statue in bristol was erected in 1895 so nearly 200 years later so it wasn't contemporary it was a victorian uh romanticization of him and, and his life and what he represented at the time yeah. so the statue itself is a part of history that is separate from his individual life when he was actually alive and the uh displaying of it now after everything we've seen in the last year is again another piece of history another part in that in that story um so i i think that that's a that's an interesting way to to tell that story 45 degrees if i were a museum curator i'd be a bit worried it was going to slip and, and <laughs> just end up horizontal i think that 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 would kind of disturb me as somebody who is always worried and was very clumsy about things breaking but I think the concept is good
2: yeah what do you think Josh
3: I don't know it strikes me as a bit fussy to be <laughs> honest I mean the guy's been he's been toppled he's been chucked in the harbour he's been graffitied I think the point has been made that uh, we no longer approve of the way he made his money um I would stick him in the museum uh put some placards from the protests around him and and a and a good proper explanation of what happened. And that's a really interesting mm. piece of history. I think putting it at 45 degrees is the classic kind of curatorial, uh, sort of overreach really just, just put this, put, if you want to put it in a museum, put it in a museum and, and let's learn about, and that's a part of the history of the city mm. and like enough, you know, enough, like we, we don't need to angle it just to make a point. A couple more, uh, vintage stories I want to pick your
2: brain on. First of all, Rachel, uh, the return of, um, what Labour always calls Tory sleaze. Um, they're saying this morning that they want uh, Parliament's sleaze watchdog to investigate the funding of the Prime Minister's Downing Street flat refurbishment. That lives on. Um, of course, it was only last week that he was cleared by by Lord Geith of uh, breaking the ministerial code, um, and uh, but he did say that he acted unwisely. But now that Labour wants uh, the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner, Catherine Stone, to get involved, and she's got a long list of things to do.
4: Uh, he was cleared, uh, although he was cleared on the basis that He's so disorganised and careless and ignorant. He he didn't know who paid for his own flat refurbishment, which I would say is almost as damning as as knowing and therefore um and, and and therefore having having broken the ministerial code. Because I don't know if I did a we don't know how much it cost, but let's say it's two hundred thousand. If I did a two hundred thousand pound home refurbishment, I would probably know who paid for it. And I think that that there's there's something in that as well. This is the prime minister who we, we know from various other accounts generally it doesn't buy his round in the pub uh, and is and is very happy to take handouts from whoever and doesn't necessarily mind or even know where the money comes from mm-hmm. i don't think uh, another inquiry even if it, it, he is found to have broken the ministerial code is going to get labor anywhere i think the days when um ministers resigned uh, from from scandals are, are are absolutely long gone and i think that labor has enough ammunition as it is to build up this idea of of this picture of tory sleaze and if it cuts through it will cut through regardless of whether there's another inquiry uh, and if it, it doesn't then it it, it won't um I, I think that it's just focus on focus on the the images right the images of the wallpaper the images of the sofa the concept of somebody who's who's living somewhere and uh while who was meant to be handling a pandemic was Choosing, choosing wallpaper and curtains with his girlfriend, and writing or not writing a book on Shakespeare—that <laughs> yeah, I think forgotten. matters more than the yeah. the details of any kind of inquiry.
2: I've forgotten about the book. Um, of course, that we'd all
4: forgotten about the book. Even <laughs> Boris Johnson forgot about it. Well, the book. yeah, got to write it <laughs> um,
2: because that's the thing, Josh, isn't it? Sort of Angela Rayner in her letter, which she's written to the Parliamentary Standards Commission, you know, has sort of highlighted the fact that he's been reprimanded in the past for certain things in terms of not registering um, a, sh- a share of a property. You know, obviously, he has the whole issue with um, who paid for his holiday to Mustique. But so there is a sort a long list of things for Labour to get their teeth into, but it is a question which is a Rachel highlighted of whether anyone cares.
3: Well, I don't think they do at the moment. I, I think you know this scandal has come and gone. Uh, I think it did will stay in the public memory just because of the expensive wallpaper um, and the John Lewis quote. But you know this is the drip drip theory of how to how to de- how to topple Boris Johnson that you will read about. I mean Matthew Paris, our columnist, often writes about it. You will read about it in a lot of anti Boris columnists where you know it's not going to be one individual scandal that brings him down it's not going to Mm -hmm. be one moment it's going to be the kind of slow erosion of the public's belief in him as a leader Uh, um so I don't think anyone I don't think this inquiry will go anywhere if it happens but it is just about creating this sort of slow erosion of Boris Johnson's public Mm -hmm. image and hopefully at some point they they want the the worm to turn on him um, and towards Keir
2: very finally, I want to ask you about, both about um, Boom Sonic, this uh, airline startup. Uh, United Airlines have ordered um, how many is it? Is it fifteen of their planes, uh, which are going to first carry passengers in twenty twenty nine? A return to supersonic travel, um, London to New York, three and a half hours down from from six and a half. Rachel, will you be snapping
4: up a ticket? Absolutely, I think it's brilliant. It's basically the hyperloop of of, um, of 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 air travel. I mean, I, I'm also a, a catastrophizer. I have very, very bad anxiety to so the idea that any of us would be flying anywhere at any point post-COVID. Is a bit of a uh, I, I find I find incredibly strange. But if the borders open. Yeah, it's it's
5: sci fi travel. Yeah, go for and it. And also,
2: Josh, it seems a lot cheaper than obviously the, the comparisons I took to Concord, um, New London to New York um, round trip uh, would cost you nine thousand one hundred forty pounds adjusted for inflation. This one apparently with United three
3: thousand five hundred. Yeah, well, I, it, presumably it's Concord without the kind of luxury and the flammery of it. But I'm I'm with Rachel. I think it's great. I think we, we're sort of back to the future. We kind of given up on you know it, sort of. Uh, Pushing the boundaries of air travel and whatnot, but why not? But, you know, we can, obviously we can build planes that can go faster. Mm. Um, and having uh, spent the last five years of my life zipping back and forth um, from London to New York, I'd be thrilled to do it in three hours. Although that is slightly too short to take a proper nap, so yeah. that would be my only query.
2: Although it is, it's
4: exactly the right time to watch a Lord of the Rings film.
2: It's exactly the right time, or just like a normal film and lunch. <laughs>
3: They... yeah no exactly it's like it's like a, a movie and you're done but but it's not you know no red eyes it's the end of the red eye
2: our columnist josh glancy and rachel cunliffe next we'll have another pre-pandemic professor
6: I was the Winton Professor for the Public Understanding of Risk until a couple of years ago, and then I retired. And Uh so now um, I'm the chair of the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication Mm -hmm. in the University of Cambridge, which is a real mouthful, but it's a a great gang of people actually funded by the same philanthropist who funded my previous chair, uh, hedge fund manager, David Harding. And he very generously has given a, a whole lot of money to employ um, great team of psychologists and web designers and communication professionals. We're all working on the business of trying to communicate risk and evidence. And I can tell you, we've been very busy this year. I can imagine. But I, but I imagine
2: before the pandemic. So you said you, you started to lead that organization around two years ago. So I imagine imagine that, that was obviously pre-pandemic. What were you what did you think your time was going to be taken up with?
6: Yeah, it's interesting. I I mean, I had this this Winton job from 2007 when I kind of changed career from being more of an academic statistician statistical methodology rather mathematical papers and so on and then went into communication as 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 something I found deeply interesting and important and I worked away largely on my own and with some other other people and a lot of the emphasis then was on on health communication but a lot of it to do with the sort of risks in normal life you know the sort of the killer bacon sandwich stories what was the (laughs) risks of drinking a little bit of alcohol you know road accidents how do we put all these risks to our normal life how do we put them in perspective how important are they and how can we communicate about them in a trustworthy way and when we set up our center um before covid was not even a gleam in anyone's eye where we um you know we were going to concentrate on those sorts of things of of media media coverage of risk stories because uh, actually they could bit gone out of fashion for a bit but they're going to come back the the you know i don't know talcum powder gives you breast cancer yogurt will give your kids you know something else asthma so all those sort of stories are going to come back again when we all get a bit finally get a bit bored with covid and so um that's what we were working on but also we were set up to work on uh, improving the way that statistics and risk and evidence is Dealt with in the law in court cases uh, about you know where there's numerical scientific forensic evidence that needs handling statistically, and um, also looking at a public policy in general, and of course that's been uh, shown you know as being so unbelievably important in um, you know in the in, in the time of COVID. So mm. we we had a lot of work on anyway, and then COVID came along, and of course then we've been um, uh, overwhelmed.
2: Yes. Know? Take me back right to the very beginning. Um, Again, correct me if I'm I'm wrong. You grew up in Devon. Um, Were your parents uh, mathematically minded? Were they they science types?
6: Uh, I mean, it's interesting. I was in Devon. My parents parents had very little education, just sort of what we now call GCSE level. And um, they left school um, and before the war. And, uh, you know, we're in the war. My father was in the RAF. My mother was a Wren. Actually, she was a champion Morse operator in, in, in the war in plymouth and um, but my and so they never had a, a, a good education. I always think my father would have gone into programming or coding or something like that because he definitely had that mind and when he was older he died when he was ninety three and right up to then, I was getting my computing advice from him <laughs> he he was a you know one of these um, you know, uh, you know, one of the started up with an Amstrad and then developed right up through computing as it went along. He loved it. He was extremely good, and he got into you know, digital um, video editing. And um, he was he was extremely adept person. So he was one of these many people who, in in history, have had these extraordinary skills. I think, and never had a chance to develop them. What does Spiegelhalter mean? Is it German? Oh, yeah yeah no it's interesting it means literally mirror holder if you google it you'll just get a whole lot of um you know little little um things for putting mirrors on walls um <laughs> but i uh, yeah, actually it's, it's an old name it's from very local from the black forest even in germany it's a bit of a funny name it's like being called higginbottom or something like that it's unbelievably sort of specific to a particular region in in southern germany mm-hmm. and um and that area anyone who knows that area of black forest it's, it's all to do with with clock, you know, cuckoo clocks, I suppose, but, but also um uh clock repair, clock making. And he was uh, he came over in 1842, my great grandfather to England as an indentured watch repairer, almost a sort of slave. He signed away his life for five years or so. And then and then came out of that and became a you know a small shopkeeper in Moulton in Yorkshire. And my so my grandfather was born you know broad Yorkshire accent. Um, but still kept his name. In, uh, in the First World War, he was in the, the Lancashire Fusiliers on one side, and his cousin was in the Bavarian something or others. On the other side, you know, apparently quite okay. close to them Quite. So going to university, you went to Oxford. Um, did
2: you know what you wanted to do at that point?
6: Well, I could only do maths, really. That, that's what I was good at at school, and I enjoyed it. Actually, I quite like languages and everything like that, but um, no, I, I, I did maths in Oxford and um, got in. I was pleased to get in. I found it very difficult. I, I like. Pure maths, I mean, that means a really abstract stuff without apparently any application whatsoever. And I like that. But about halfway through the second year, it just got too difficult. Um, you know, I'm just not clever enough. You were, I hadn't got the right sort of mind to grab that level of abstraction. And so the stylish casting around for anything else what, what else to go into, I, I was very fortunate to have a, a, a tutor, Adrian Smith, who's now president of the Royal Society, Professor Sir Adrian Smith, so that was a bit of luck, because he was a young man, he was only six years older than me, and I was 18, and um, he, um, he, he was very enthusiastic about probability and statistics, and really quite passionate, passionate, no, literally passionate about it, and, um, and he got me into that, and i have never stopped that passion we used to argue sit in the pubs arguing about what probability meant what were statistical models what is the whole point of this stuff and i've never stopped it is fascinating because you know from a you know what does probability mean it's a real old mess you know we i could talk about that for ages because nobody can agree what it means what would you what would your neatest shortest um, definition B? Well, um, the, the, the crucial thing is that traditionally, probability has meant things, things like, well, how often something comes up in the long run, or yeah. the dice are one in six chance because the dice is symmetric and everything like that. And I'd say, no, that's not what it means. I, I've got a slightly extreme point of view, the sort of radical wing, which is, says that probability doesn't exist outside us at all you know for all we know everything might be you know predetermined by the will of god and it makes no difference at all to what we how we handle it because um it's to do with our personal uncertainty about what might happen this is called a subjectivist view of probabilities also known as the bayesian perspective and um it means that your judgments, your probabilities, are a relationship between you and the world. It's an expression of what you don't understand. Mm-hmm. And this viewpoint, um, which was pretty far out when I first learned it, has now become pretty standard. Pretty well, all the modeling being done during the, co- the epidemic by the big modeling teams is Bayesian. Um, it, it, it incorporates a, a level of judgment that goes into those models. They're not just purely a function of the data alone. There's a level of judgment that goes in, and uh, and this is good. This is good. We cannot just say what does the data say. Data doesn't say anything on its own. We have to put some judgment in, and so um, I, I th- that's my perspective, my viewpoint, and I and I stuck stuck with it, and it's proved to be incredibly valuable because it leads you to a degree of humility you have to admit well i just don't know what's going on and to be and not to be ashamed of admitting you don't know this is what probability is it's when you don't know what is going on yeah
2: tell me when you started to have interactions with um industry and the private sector away from academia the, the likes of you've worked with the likes of, of smith klein and, and yep. novartis um, yep. big pharma companies what were you doing for them
6: Oh, because pharma companies absolutely rely on statistics as a core skill, um, and statisticians are treated, you know, with extreme um, uh, not reverence exactly, but they're treated very well. In. And so, I, I was a consultant for a number of companies um, uh, doing essentially they do drug trials. They do just like the vaccine trials have been done, but these were for other pharmaceutical. Compounds and, um, and that includes being on data monitoring committees where you're sitting there analyzing the data as it comes in to decide when the study could be stopped early because either the drug was really effective or it was so useless that the company were wasting their money. And so this was extremely valuable because I got paid for it, paid very well. Um, but I also learned a huge amount about the use of statistics in real life problems, which has proved invaluable this year when we're looking at vaccine studies and trials, we're looking at randomised trials for different uh, treatments and, um, and trying to evaluate the effect of policies as well. So um, it was a very good experience uh, to do, which, I've, which I'm, I'm pleased with. I also worked with other bodies, like World of Fascinating One, working with the, WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency. On, well, you do, um, exactly.
2: So was that trying to spot... Um curiosities in the data where people might be might be cheating
6: yeah there? that was the idea of sort of, of doping passports that people would have that that every athlete would have a you know a record of all their tests in the past and in order to calibrate their own personal biology and so when deviations from those were spotted you could get a quick measure of when somebody's, um, you know, their biology would seem to be different from what you'd normally expect. And um, as an indication, well, maybe they should be investigated further. Um, so the, the, those sorts of signaling, signals, trying to detect when something was different from normal, mm. which started off in industry um, for detecting things, you know, when production lines were going a bit skew. And um, then I went into using those for detecting Changes in, in um, surgical performance where more people were dying than you'd expect. Then I went on, which you may want to come to, to looking at, you know, murder, murder. Harold Shipman. Could he have been caught earlier by bringing yeah. in these statistical process control methods that detected early deviations? And then I went into the, you know, advising on doping.
2: Well. well, let's let's rewind slightly onto onto what you were talking about there. I, I think you were talking about the first of all the um, the, the scandal about uh, children's heart surgery at the yep. Royal Infirmary. Yep. So th- this obviously was for the public inquiry. This was after the facts, and you were, and your role was what for the inquiry to see were were signals missed?
6: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was originally I I was working beforehand with Great Ormond Street Hospital on um, detecting um, mm-hmm. when actually an individual surgeon was losing their touch. And uh, with a very brave surgeon who had a cluster of failures, a cluster of deaths from an extremely difficult operation, and um, and we wrote a paper on methodology for when you could very quickly detect that something was going odd, and it was adapting industrial. Technology. And then, of course, the Bristol inquiry came along when, uh, if people remember, this about the in late ni- in the 1990s when a lot of babies were dying at Bristol of heart surgery who might have survived had they gone elsewhere. Um, you know, maybe 35 babies died who uh, over and above what you would have expected. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was wheeled in, first of all, at the, the case um, for the General Medical Council, which led to a number of doctors being um, removed from their list. And uh, and then in the public inquiry, I led the statistical team. And that was it used some quite stif- stif- sophisticated statistics to work out well, when could these issues have been detected? And, you know, really, were they an outlier and, uh, and possibly why were they an outlier? Um, and it was really quite influential, that whole process, because up to then, I think the medical profession had been kind of relied on to police itself. Yes. Um, oh, we don't need to publish our data. You know, this doesn't have to be publicly done. Well, actually, that you know that lost that argument. And after that, uh, there's been a big move to um, you know to publishing results of individual surgeons. I can find out how many deaths individual heart surgeons have had. It's on the web. It was you know. At the time, people thought, oh, this will be the end of medicine as we know it. And <laughs> actually, it's happened, and no one's taken that much notice. You know, apparently, you know what has happened is some, um, you know bad surgeons, poorly performing surgeons have retired. And now um, everybody who doesn't matter actually that much where you go for your hurt, heart surgery in this country, the the variation between the surgeons has been reduced staggeringly because of this scrutiny that they've been under. And, um,
2: and from rubbish surgeons to, well, murderous GPs. Yeah, uh, murderous, similar, yeah. Similar thing looking at, at Howard Shipman. I wonder, and actually there's been an interesting thread this week in some of the interviews that I've done uh, for for this item is is the point at which the work you do which um be it for statisticians or infectious disease modelers or behavioral psychologists a lot of it can actually be detached from the real world and i don't and i wonder when you when you come up against something like that that how chip murders which is both so public and also so gruesome um if, if that changes how you approach your work
6: oh absolutely i had a huge that and the bristol um inquiry a big event because there at Bristol, I was having to give evidence, being cross-examined by a by a lawyer with the parents in the audience, a few oh, rows gosh. away, whose children had died because of this. Um, and similarly, um, at the Harold Shipman inquiry, we we're giving evidence of being, being examined there with the families of the victims in the room. So that actually brings home, first of all, the care you need in describing what's gone on. You can't sound like a callous statistician, even though you are, or it it's just counting the bodies <laughs> sometimes you know, yeah. you're saying when could the, he have been detected when could the whistle have been blown after how many deaths and we worked out actually while he killed maybe 260 people after 40 deaths he could have been detected but you if we had used proper statistical methods um so you know we have to say that and you have to uh, and it, it really taught me the importance of Communication of, of taking into account that you're talking about real events; these are not just abstract, you know, um, squiggles on a page. And so, um, and, and it's actually that's what led me to want to change my job into something that was much more connected with communication, with the under, public understanding of statistics, and so on. And the first impact was that was after that, I started giving talks at science festivals, about the Shipman case and Bristol case. So I gave a lot more public presentations to all sorts of groups, schools. And, Retired groups and that sort of thing, and I just found, well, this is cool. I really <laughs> like doing this, and I think this is a good thing to do. And those two things, which
2: we've uh, alluded on, there were both inquiries after the fact. Obviously, yeah. we're in the middle of the of the COVID mm. pandemic at the moment, and I wonder mm. how. I mean, when you come on the radio and you have an an RC journalist like me grubbly after a newsline, we are desperate for you to say something yeah. punchy sexy to splash on the front of newspapers. Is that in the back of your mind thinking yeah, what I say I,
6: makes news? It's not in the back of my it's at the very front of my mind, I realize because I've I've made every this year, I've made every I've done a lot of media work. I've made every mistake. I've made I've done everything that you shouldn't do. We've written articles now. My and a colleague Kevin McConway, on you know how to deal with the media if you're a statistician, where they try to set you up. But the best thing is that it's your job to set us up. Um, but the crucial thing is that media are obsessed with conflict and they're yes. obsessed with blame. And then they're, they're also obsessed with conflict and speculation. What do you think will happen next year? What do you <laughs> think will happen if we do this? And I think, I haven't got a clue. It's not my job and I'm not going to blame people either. So you know the blame and speculation... Uh, what make the media they love it Mm. scientists say this will happen scientists say you should do this scientists say they shouldn't have done that well okay it goes on all the time and I'm just refused to take that role, so I've got a lot better. I would learned to just say no. I'm not going to talk about that. You'd have to ask somebody else. Not my job. I'm not going mm. to do that. And is, and turn it into a bit of a joke. I mean, I had a lovely, <laughs> a, <laughs> a lovely um, you know episode on on the Today program where I, I, I'm Times Radio. I've done that. You know, I'm faced with exactly this sort of thing, and you just get used to it in countering. So I'm not going to talk about that. I'm just going to try to explain what I think is going mm. on. But I, t- um,
2: I, I totally have respect for that. Though. Because there are so many people out there actually who are professors of whatever who are then thrown a question about, I don't know, when we might be able to go on holiday to Spain and they pontificate on it. And I think that is well out of your area of expertise. <laughs> And actually, I prefer it when someone says, "I don't know that." Yeah. Ask somebody else who does. It's
6: not not my job, but, uh, but you kind of feel. I used to think, "Oh well, they've asked me a question. I should try to answer." <laughs> well, I've, I've I've definitely learned. It. I'm taking no notice of that. Saying no, no, I have I was asked to go and tell you. Oh, could you tell and talk about hugging? I thought. For goodness sake, I'm a statistician. I'm not going to talk about hugging. So and I, I, my the feedback I've got, personally, is that actually the audience has really quite enjoyed, first of all, me saying, I'm not going to talk about that, but also the fact that, you know, when actually helping them to understand what's going on rather than endlessly giving an opinion my personal opinion is well no, I, I i just not i, you know, I do have my opinions my, my main opinion is that i haven't got a clue you know <laughs> I, I don't know what's going to happen I, I think you'd better keep out of it and I, I think there's been brilliant scientific work done during this pandemic there's been scientists been out there huge amount of media coverage so many people have been so done so well and so helpful but i do think uh, without criticizing my colleagues particularly that it, it is good to try to separate out when you're trying to explain what you feel in a way the facts are what's actually happening yeah with what is much more to do with advice or speculation, and I think we should really try to keep those separate.
2: Do you think you might be involved in any kind of public inquiry that happens after the fact? I wonder how worried people are about that. Is that something that, uh, that you think about?
6: Well, I've already been, I mean, I don't know how many parliamentary committees have been in front of, yeah. you know, giving evidence and things like that. So, yeah, it could happen. But uh, I've got, got to give a plug. We've, we're, we're just finishing a book, which will be out in the summer, on, you know, what's happened over the last year. I hope it's not too out of date by the time it comes out, but um, and which we hope will help people understand kind of what's been what's been happening when there is an inquiry. It is good that we can um, kind of step back a bit now and examine. Not that it's over for Mm. any to completely at all.
2: How does Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter? Unwind I 'm on the Internet at the moment, and I can see a picture of you uh, as part of a samba band in July 2009. Is that, oh, is that what you yeah. do, Is that what you do a weekend?
6: I don't not anymore. I played in a samba band for 10 years bass drum at the back, low <laughs> surdo I played, and um, I really enjoyed it. There's was nothing better you know to get rid of your frustration than thumping the hell out of a big bass drum at the back of a band, particularly when in some of our, some of our gigs we might have 50, 60 of us playing, the noise was totally deafening. And to be part of a carnival, going down a street with dancers and people cheering, and oh, it's just wonderful. It's one of the best of things I've done. But I don't do that anymore. I got a bit more. I now I sing bass in a choir, so I now, <laughs> become a little bit bit more demure. In my
2: <laughs> Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter, a statistician extraordinaire, and also. Thoroughly good egg, I think you'll agree. If you want to catch up with any of the other professors that we, we've profiled this week, uh, they're all here on the Times Red Box podcast. So if you missed a few days' worth, uh, you might not have heard Professor Susan Mickey talking about doing yoga every morning, or Professor Danny Altman, the immunologist, talking about how every morning between the hours of 5 a.m. and 6 a.m., he likes to sit in the bath and uh, read serious literature, as, as he has it. Next, we will talk about long COVID.
6: A lot can happen in three years,
7: like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
6: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Borough order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com ACAST.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at LutonRising.org.uk.
2: Long Covid. New figures this morning from the Office for National Statistics have revealed around 1 million people in the UK have reported experiencing long Covid in April. 400,000 people appear to have been suffering for a year, a marked increase, they say. The illness is estimated to adversely affect the day-to-day activity of two-thirds of a million people, And if you know anyone who has suffered from it, you'll know it can be grim. But how to treat it, or at least manage the symptoms effectively. Dr Melissa Heitman is a respiratory physician and clinical lead at the University College London Long Covid Clinic. I asked her, first of all, what her role was at the hospital pre-pandemic.
1: I'm a respiratory consultant and my areas of interest were interstitial lung disease, so looking after patients with lung fibrosis. Um, and also uh, working with the community services with patients who have long-term respiratory disease um, and the most common forms would be COPD, um, Mm -hmm. asthma, bronchiectasis so um, yes this is a you know I think we're all having to adjust to the new demands of long COVID. Long COVID is not a respiratory disease it's a a multi-system disease but um, as physicians, we're trained in um, a wide range of um, medicine, so known as general internal medicine as well. So, um, and, we, and actually, most lung disease has a multi-system component. So,
2: so in terms of the Long COVID clinic, if I can call it that. At, yes, that's um, right. UCLH, um, and I think it, it was set up in May 2020. So, sort of quite quick off the back of actually the pandemic really starting to bite.
1: That's right, yes. We made our first um, phone calls to patients who'd been discharged from our A&E department uh, on the 20th of April, I think it was. So, And that, that's when we realised that people could get very long-lasting symptoms after the initial illness. And sometimes from those phone conversations, we were worried enough that we felt we needed a face-to-face assessment and some uh, access to some other tests to really evaluate them safely. And we were obviously keen to protect people going from having to go back to A&E at that time Hmm. um, because it was so busy. And uh, so we found another solution, which was to have a mobile unit parked outside the hospital, which had chest X-ray capability. And we set up the clinic rooms uh, in there with doctors and physios and um, ability to take bloods as well. So that was the the first approach and um, saw our first patients on the 11th of May last year. So we've been running for more than a year now.
2: And of course, we've learned so much throughout this pandemic um, about COVID, but how much have we learned about long COVID? At the time of recording, how how confident are you about what it is and and how it operates?
1: So I think... We're getting better at recognising the range of symptoms and the different patterns of illness which can make up long COVID. Mm. Uh, We don't think of it as one thing. Um, Different patients can experience different components of it and I think uh, we're fairly certain that there's a number of different underlying mechanisms. Um, I think some progress has certainly been made in generating theories for what those mechanisms might be, Um, but there's a lot of work needed to actually... Um, investigate those theories and and get better evidence for them. Um, Similarly, with treatments, uh, we've been, in a sense, uh, repurposing treatment approaches from other conditions um, in the hope that they're useful, particularly in the way that we manage the therapy of these patients, um, such as managing their fatigue and their breathlessness. Uh, But there's also uh, occasionally some medications that have a role Um, And we're really keen that more randomised controlled trials uh, can be started up in long COVID patients to really know if those treatments are uh, effective or not. Um, So, as I say, yes, most of the way we approach the condition is using expertise from similar scenarios.
2: What are the hardest symptoms that that arise in in long COVID to, to help sort out or to help ease?
1: So I think a symptom that we particularly struggle with is um, what patients describe as brain fog. Um, So they tell us they have difficulty concentrating um, in finding words, multitasking. Um, And at the moment, it seems to be in a sense like a brain fatigue so that the more they have to use the brain, the more difficult those symptoms are. So our approach to treatment is really just about trying to help them pace what they do so that they don't overuse their brain, but it's rather dissatisfying. And I think it's one of the worst symptoms for patients um, really is holding them back in returning to their normal lives. So um, I think that's, that's an area that we all struggle with with as long COVID doctors and therapists. And we also struggle with the, the, the chest pain that patients experience. It's not really quite like, um, chest pain in other scenarios and um, I think we're still we still got a lot to learn about the right way to investigate that and manage and manage the the chest pain which is quite common after COVID
2: and do forgive forgive me if this is a really stupid question but in terms of investigations that are going on at the moment and trials Mm. into long COVID what it is and and how it's treated Mm. uh, how sure are you that it's something that you will be able to find out or figure out in the short or medium term or does it have does it look like some of those conditions and things where that we, we still after many many years or even decades don't know how they operate you know in the same way that yeah um, there are lots of autoimmune diseases which we just don't know about really still
4: that i think that's
1: sense? yeah that's a very good question and i think you know um, many doctors who who deal with long term conditions are realistic that um, about the limitations of modern medicine. And uh, no, I do not expect to have the mechanisms clearly defined in, in the next year. But, I, but, but that said, I, I think actually there are some very exciting studies go on which will start making progress in that direction. Um, and I think there are already some treatments um, available that are being repurposed to long COVID. That are worth evaluating in a trial and in sort of patient by patient, um, at patient by patient level, we do see uh, bring some benefits. So it's absolutely not a hopeless situation, but um, I think you're quite right that to truly get to grips with mechanisms in a scenario as complicated as this is going to take quite a long time.
2: Does that then engender a lot of frustration in patients that they come to you wanting treatment and definitive answers and you're trying to explain to them, well, actually we, we don't really know a lot about this, but here this might be able to help you a bit.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think patients are um, very frustrated. Uh, Partly it can have taken them a long time to be referred for assessment. Um, And for somebody who was previously fit and well, to be told that they have a condition that isn't well understood and that could last a very long time is a really difficult moment for them. Um, it's like when you receive any difficult diagnosis, isn't it? So, yes, I, th- I think that's um, something that we try to do as well as possible in the clinic and um, try to manage that uncertainty We try to be as open as possible about what we've seen in the large number of patients who've already been through the service. There absolutely is. There's a very large number of patients who do get better on their own. Um, And it's just that the time course that that happens over is variable person by person.
2: I don't want to drag a a scare story out of you necessarily, but I wonder what what is the worst that you've seen?
1: So. I think you're right that I, that, that I don't. I don't think the scare stories are helpful either. Um, I think that, you know the worst that we see is somebody whose symptoms don't don't seem to follow an improving trend. You know the patients who feel really stuck with very difficult symptoms, and we have a small group of patients who even a year after their illness, their infection with COVID, are still quite unwell. Um, I feel that that's the minority, and obviously within our service we see the most um, difficult the patients who, who were struggling the most. Yeah. Um, so um, I think, you know, worst case, that, that's, that's the situation. And I think another um, worst case is where someone's been misdiagnosed as long COVID and actually they have a, a different illness that needs a different approach. Um, so it's, it's, it's an important part of our assessment is making sure that we think this is the right diagnosis.
2: What is your workload like at the moment? Um, it seems like the, the I, it's quite scary. The, the, I always see that when the figures, we see figures of, of how many people who have had COVID end up with some kind of long COVID complication or issue or, or symptoms. It seems like a, a worrying amount, especially in terms of if we're thinking about pressures on the NHS.
1: Yes, I think it's something we're all really worried about. So we have a very large number of patients waiting to be seen. So as a service, capacity is a big concern for us. And we're always trying to find ways to work more efficiently and effectively. Um, we're also worried by the large number of patients who are actually accessing care and um, through other touch points in the NHS and perhaps not being referred on onto the right pathway, which means that actually the number of patients who have need at the moment is probably larger than it feels like a sitting in an hour in basket. Um, and the probably even more worrying is the patients from vulnerable groups, um, non-English speakers, homeless patients um, who are not accessing care at all, and. Uh, I think one thing we're really focusing on in our part of London is trying to reach those individuals and communities more effectively. Um, and I think we we are going to rely on the voluntary sector and the charities groups um, to help us with that project. So um, yes, there's there. I think there is a large, significant unmet need at the moment. Um, and I think obviously for the NHS trying to coordinate itself coordinate itself to meet that need alongside what we call the recovery programme, trying to catch up with all the work we haven't been able to do during the pandemic. It's an enormous challenge.
4: Yeah.
2: And a a real pressure on staffing on, on your time, as you say, there's that backlog of people that we keep hearing about people who haven't even presented to services yet for for symptoms, which maybe they've had for for months to do with other things. And then all of now that these people who need treatment for, for long COVID, I wonder, do you have the, do you have the, the staffing resource and, and, and the money that you, that you need, do you think?
1: We have a little bit of the money we need. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: But no, no, of course we don't. Not yet. But um, I think modelling that requirement is challenging. And there's so many calls on uh, resource at the moment that we, I think that the system is trying to make sure we use every pound in the best possible way. So I think there's an enormous goodwill and energy and effort going into solving this, um, but we're not going to solve it in a day.
2: Do you think that powers that be, be that, I don't know, in in NHS leadership in in, in government, um, do you think they've realised that the scale of the problem and and the scale of the need that will be required in terms of services like yours?
1: I actually am quite reassured by that. I, I um, am attending, um, some really productive working groups at various levels regional national, and and international and i think they are well cited on the need and i i feel um that they really are doing their best to 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 address it so i don't i don't feel that the need is not recognized i just think that the enormity of the challenge in meeting the need is, is 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 going to be very difficult
2: just finally dr hyman i wonder if if you could reflect on me for, to the um reflect on the the amazing way in which what you do in these long COVID clinics have cropped up and adapted to the situation so quickly throughout this pandemic. We're always talking about the n h s in terms of it being on the brink and there not being enough resource but also there's been incredible innovation in the way the n h s has operated what it's done and and how it does it and what you're doing is is an example of that isn't it
1: I think that's right. I think the NHS is an extraordinary organisation full of incredibly talented people who just contribute um, of their skills and time uh, in the most wonderfully generous way. And I think the long COVID work is a, is a brilliant example of this, about how all the, the partners in, in our healthcare system have come together. To support each other and, and try and generate a sort of joined up consistent approach for patients and share learning as best we can. And that sounds a bit utopian but I think in that regard the pandemic has brought out some, some wonderful things which I hope can be transferred to other conditions as well.
2: What kind of conditions?
1: I'm particularly thinking about long-term conditions where a patient um, requires care from a number of different um what we call providers, so the GP, the community teams, the hospital. It's always been a challenge to make that care joined up um, and of a sort of equivalent quality. And uh, this long COVID is giving us a really good opportunity to work across those boundaries. Um, and I think it's something we've been trying to do um, in long term conditions for a long time.
2: Dr. Melissa Heitman, a respiratory physician and clinical lead at the University College London Long COVID Clinic, can you own stats this morning, uh, showing us the, the vast scale? of the problem, uh, people who are suffering with uh, with symptoms of long COVID, which affect them during their day-to-day lives. 400,000 people, uh, they suggest. You might be one of them. 8722 is how to text us. Start your message with the word Times. You can tweet us at Times Radio. In a moment, we'll hear from the uh, founder of the post-acute COVID-19 syndrome support group. First, uh, the view from the NHS Confederation. Leila McKay is policy director there. I asked her, how will this affect uh, this growing problem? How will it affect the NHS?
7: I think, the challenge with long COVID is that we actually don't have a good way of understanding just how large the challenge is. Obviously, we have seen figures from the ONS. So, for example, in April, it said there was as many as 1.1 million people. But what our members tell us is that this is pretty hard to be sure of because long COVID presents in all sorts of different ways. It's got quite a wide variety of symptoms and it's not always the case that health professionals will always code it as long COVID. So they might code it in terms of whatever the symptom is that somebody's appearing with, whether it's, you know, breathlessness or fatigue or mental health problems. And Because of that, it could be the case that some cases of long COVID could become hidden and not uh, counted as part of the overall prevalence. So certainly our members think this is clearly a really large challenge, but we're still trying to understand the scale of that challenge.
2: And is it clear yet what might need to be done to ease uh, those pathways to treatment? Uh, Dr. Melissa was telling us just about how, how... Actually, part of the issue sometimes, as you've alluded to there, is that people with long COVID are sort of lost in the system sometimes because no one can really get a, get a grip on actually what's up with them. And it takes them quite a while to find specialist long COVID services, if there are any.
7: Yeah, certainly our members tell us that specialist long COVID services can be really helpful. In particular, they can be helpful in excluding other causes yeah. of this wide variety of symptoms that people can be experiencing so that people really understand that this is long COVID. But it seems that the majority of care for the people who are experiencing long COVID is going to be taking place in primary care, in community services, in mental health services, sometimes in A&E. And our members are telling us that we need to make sure that we're investing both in those specialist services, but also in those other places where patients are going to seek their longer-term care, and you know that's 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 a real challenge because, as we mm. all know, uh, we're seeing increased demand for primary care. We're seeing increased demand for mental health services right now. Long COVID is certainly forming a part of that.
2: And is the is the money there for this?
7: Some money is there, of course, but. What we're hearing is that it is not going to be enough to meet the scale of the challenge. And also, some of the money that has come in is very much focusing on specialist services, which is great, of course. These are services that are potentially really useful. But we also need to remember that if the care is happening in specialist services, but also in primary care, in community services, in mental health, then those are services that additionally need that investment.
2: I wonder, do you think government is taking this this serious enough as a as as a looming worry for for the NHS?
7: I think it is a recognized challenge and certainly there are plans in place for how to deal with long COVID. Uh, there's an NHS task force in place, there's nice guidelines, there's certain levels of investment. But We need to remember that we're still at a fairly early stage of understanding long COVID. The research is at an early stage. We don't know how this will develop. So really, I think that everyone needs to keep quite close to the emerging research uh, in order to understand what's actually going to be needed in the longer term and make sure that the appropriate investment in money in specialist skills in ensuring access for people to the services that mm. they need is all in place when people need it.
2: Layla McKay, policy director at the NHS Confederation, live with us now. Louise Barnes, the founder of the Post Acute COVID Syndrome uh, Post COVID Syndrome Nineteen Support Group. Hi, Louise. Good morning. Um, we've been hearing first from Layla McKay there, then also from Dr. Mister Heitman from the uh, UCLH Long COVID Clinic about about the problems. Um, treating this and managing symptoms in the long term. I wonder what your experience is and what the experience of your members has been with that.
5: Well, unfortunately, uh, members are really struggling. Um, I work across, I sit on an an NHS long COVID task force and also uh, as a patient's voice on several other committees, including NICE. Uh, and uh, whilst there have been uh, great attempts made to get these clinics up and running, um, unfortunately, uh, so many of our patients uh, and members in other groups are reporting continuing problems. I think the issue is, is that we, we understand that this is a relatively uh, so-called new disease, uh, and uh, the government is throwing £50 million at it, uh, but unfortunately it's not been enough, and many of these clinics, are having problems with the communications internally between GPs and um, between the hospitals. And uh, just yesterday, I spoke to two patients from two of the groups who are having letters telling them that they have to go for talking therapy uh, or have been referred back to their GPs and haven't got anywhere. And this seems to be uh, an increasing problem, despite... At the NHS England saying
2: otherwise. But, but Louise, is it just an issue? I wonder of of organisation, or is it about um, availability and resource? Just because um, Dr Heitman from UCLH, when I asked if there's enough money, she said, uh, "No, of course we don't." Uh, Layla from uh, Layla McKay from the NHS Confederation said, uh, "Some of the money in the, of some of the money is there, but it's not going to be enough." It sounds like that, obviously there are issues with organisation, but there's just not enough of what you need.
5: Uh, and I think a large proportion of the money has gone into organising um, clinics, rehabilitation clinics at the Nuffield Trust centres. Uh, and uh, that's left little for um, the actual uh, face-to-face clinics uh, to carry on. I don't think there's enough money. Uh, but unfortunately, um, the government have ignored a treatment that we have been trialling and which we have been campaigning to get recognised mm-hmm. at government level since uh, December of last year, which is very cheap, 45 pence a day, uh, and it is a peer-reviewed science-based treatment
2: and that is the end of our chat about long COVID. Thanks very much for downloading the podcast today. Uh, remember you can always get in touch uh, with what you think. Matt will be back tomorrow. If you uh, subscribe, if you uh, rate us wherever you found this podcast, that really helps not just you because it means the next edition plops into your uh, device, whatever that is, but also it means that more people might be able to find us as well if you uh, say nice things in the comments and the like. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I've been Luke Jones. You remember you can tune into this show and lots of other shows live on Times Radio. Matt show that I've been covering this week is 10am to 1pm Monday through Friday. I host Weekend Breakfast. Uh, You can find me on Twitter as well, at LukeJones03. Thank you. Good company.